You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm Emma, Emma Proud, the Head of Learning and Adapting at Brink, and I have the pleasure to chair this event today, which is organised under the FCDO-funded Learn Adapt programme and co-hosted by ODI and Brink. And today we're going to be exploring how bureaucracies around the world are shaping themselves to address complex challenges. Now, the very word bureaucracies brings to mind red tape and cumbersome processes, like piles of paper and hurdles to progress and innovation. Or a more current picture might bring to mind like the markets, metrics and managers of new public management. But when we think of the challenges that bureaucracies like exist to address, there's a contrast, they're complex, they're dynamic. So how have bureaucracies managed to shift away from this stereotype to work in a more appropriate and adaptive way? Well, today um, our panellists are going to frame this topic and share their experiences of taking up more adaptive approaches. So as you listen, they'll be sharing something first, but then please do think of questions that you can ask them to help us kind of delve deeper into their experiences of these approaches. Um, the panellists who are joining us today bring invaluable expertise from academia, government and the donor community. And they're going to share their first-hand experiences in researching or directly practising adaptive approaches in their sector and organisations. So first, a big welcome to Toby Lowe, who is the Visiting Professor of Public Management at the Centre for Public Impact. Um, Enna Fernandez, the OIC Director at the Philippines House of Representatives. Sam Sharp, a Research Officer at the Overseas Development Institute. Stacey Young, Agency Knowledge Management and Organizational Learning Officer at USAID. And Yen Yen Ang, Professor at the University of Michigan. So I'm going to start by asking some questions of our panellists and then we'll take your questions. So please use the chat box to note those down as we go. And to kick things off, I will hand over to Toby first, who's going to walk us through some of the key concepts that we're going to be exploring today and how those relate to public management. Over to you, Toby. Thank you very much, Emma. Um, so good afternoon, folks. Uh, I think a useful starting point for our conversation today is that most of the challenges that governments face in the 21st century are complex. And so what do I mean by that? Well, we know that governments are charged with creating positive outcomes in the world. So this is what we want our public service, our international development to do. And outcomes in the world are intrinsically complex. So our starting point is, if you care about outcomes, you have to care about complexity. And let's look at a, a, concrete, a concrete example to, to dig into this. Let's look at the outcome of obesity. So we have a pretty decent idea about how the outcome of obesity or not, or its absence, is made. Uh, Rob, could you show the map, please? Um, so this is a systems map of obesity produced by the UK uh, Government Office for Science in 2007. 
It's what happens when you shut a bunch of public health experts in a room together and say, you're not allowed out until you map all the causes of obesity and all the relationships between all of those causes. 108 different factors they uh, identified uh, uh, as, as leading to the outcome of obesity or not. Um, uh, you can't see the, 100, uh, the individual 108 factors on this map, but they can be summed up in areas like food production and supply, macroeconomic drivers, education, technology, uh, early life experiences, the built environment, the nature of work, and healthcare and treatment options. Um, um, what this map shows is that the outcome of obesity, like any outcome, is the product of a whole complex system. So the, the key thing that this shows us, the key message, is that outcomes are not delivered by organisations or programmes, they're produced by whole systems. So we can see this on this uh, on this map, we can, if you look at the bottom right-hand corner of the uh, systems map, you see healthcare and treatment options. These are the things that public services do or that international development programs undertake. And they're four factors out of 108. This is the reality of how the world works. This is the reality of how outcomes are made. And this has significant implications for how we do public management, how we plan and manage international development programs, for example. And one really crucial message that the complex reality of the world demands of us is don't try and manage public service or international development programs by the use of targets or KPIs. Particularly, do not set outcome targets for these programs. Why not? Because what, what uh, managers are saying when they set outcome targets is that they're holding organisations or programmes accountable for delivering those outcomes. But those organisations, as we can see, those organisations and programmes aren't in control of those outcomes. They are four factors out of 108. And so if you try and hold these people accountable, you're seeking, them to hold, you're seeking to hold them accountable for things they don't and cannot control. So what happens when people try and performance manage by outcomes in this way? So by the use of payment by results or kind of results-based management? Fortunately, there's lots and lots of evidence about this because lots of people have tried it in lots of different places. And pretty much the same thing happens every time. It creates gaming in the system. So in layman's terms, it turns everyone's job into the production of good looking data. And guess what? That means that the programs produce excellent looking results data, but it's not real. And it means that you can't trust the data in the system. So that data is also essentially useless for learning. So people have been trying payment by results for 150 years now, and it's 150 years of solid failure. You'd kind of think we'd have learned our lessons by now. But fortunately, there is an alternative. So here at the Centre for Public Impact, we've been exploring an alternative vision for government, which starts by recognising that the world is complex. And one of the ways that that vision for government is being implemented is through an alternative approach to public management called human learning systems. And one of the key elements of this is a change in management focus. So management that optimizes for learning rather than control. And it says that the primary job of managers is to create learning environments which enable adaptation. 
So we've been studying this within an international development context by looking at the LearnAdapt program. And it's staggering how similar what we've found in that context is to the other examples of the human learning systems approach that we've seen elsewhere in public service in the UK. Um, and what we've found is that uh, in this LearnAdapt context is that learning together builds trust between people and organizations. And that trust creates the space for experimentation and adaptation and a dynamic response to the ever-changing nature of the world. As one person put it, when, uh, when COVID hit, it means that we didn't need to get the lawyers involved to rewrite our delivery contracts. And ongoing adaptation then requires learning together. And so the cycle continues. And crucially, from the evidence we've seen in other places, this approach to public management creates much better value for money. You get better outcomes cheaper because you're enabling those who know best to keep doing the right thing, even as the right thing constantly changes. Um, so that's, uh, and that's it for me in terms of some opening framing. I hope that's useful for uh, provoking some interesting conversation. Magic. Thank you, Toby. Um, Anna, Toby made some really interesting points about the importance of learning and adapting, particularly in complexity. Um, from your experience in the Philippine House of Representatives, can you share for us an example of how you've worked more adaptively and why that's been important? Yeah, thank you, Emma. I work at the committee on at the committee in the Philippine House of Representatives that is in charge of raising taxes and taxes will never be appealing to the public. So we find ways to make the unpalatable somewhat edible. You see, our constitution mandates that tax legislations originate in the House of Representatives and then sent to the Senate. Hence, the role of our committee is quite critical. But in the last Congress, we had some hits and misses. Uh, that was 2016 to 2019. I was a researcher working on the sidelines of the income tax reform. And a lot of legislators were complaining that the campaign wasn't effective. So I contacted advocates through friends. And so when we were mapping champions and stakeholders over coffee sessions after office hours, we shifted the messaging from tax funding for traffic reducing infrastructure to that of investing for the future of our children. You see that the traffic in Manila is quite horrendous, but the influential legislators hail from provinces where traffic is manageable. Fortunately, the measure was enacted into law and since then we've earned more than $5 billion. With this network, we were quite excited. So we worked hard on the next tax reform aimed at rationalizing preferential tax treatments, which benefit certain businesses. Unfortunately, our committee had too many meetings and consequently we were blamed for not transmitting it to the Senate on time. In this Congress, however, starting 2019, our chair is a genuine champion of tax reforms and he appointed me as committee secretary. And with the opportunity, we were able to strategize openly. Learning from our mistakes, we approved the tax reform bills expeditiously in the committee, arguing that there were adequate deliberations in the previous Congress. Using a certain rule, which we just found out about, and we shifted the debate to the plenary. It was August then, and by September, we knew that the tax reforms will be secondary to budget legislation. If we got delayed, it would push us back by four months. 
So we pushed on and with this strategy, we passed three priority measures in one month. That's such, that is one big record. And of course, including one rationalizing preferential tax treatments. And this time, no one could blame us. I would say that from this experience, I would say that messaging is the key to successful advocacy, but we can only do this if we know the institution inside out. And if we are brave enough to embrace ambiguities and complexities, which are common in policymaking and which I assume is also common in most organizations. Thank you, Emma. Thank you very much, Emma. Um, Yen Yen, your research speaks about the importance of directed improvisation. Could you tell us a little bit more about what this means as a way to create space for improvisation in like large bureaucracies? Sure, thank you very much for uh, having me. Um, the concept of directed uh, improvisation, simply put, is the merger of top-down direction and bottom-up adaptation in organizations, including in public bureaucracies. And one useful way to think about um, the uniqueness of directed improvisation is in contrast to two models of management that we are familiar with. The first is top-down control, which is the management model that we are trying to challenge today. And the other opposite is letting go of control. So we normally think about uh, management as having only these two options of either exerting control or um, loosening control. Uh, what directed improvisation um, proposes is that we need to rethink the role of leadership. Um, instead of having the management uh, control set commands, what the management needs to do instead is to direct. That direction means that it needs to provide the necessary guidance and the necessary conditions for bottom-up adaptation to happen. And in my work, I show how this manifested in the context in the context of uh, China's market reform, in which surprisingly, despite being a top-down communist government, during the period of market reform, it had displayed an extraordinarily adaptive bureaucracy that was adept at using policy experiments. Directed improvisation is not unique to China. You can also find parallels in the case of the United States in the federal government's promotion of technological innovation. You can also find it in the multi-level uh, multi governance in the, United, um, in the EU. Um, in directed improvisation, we don't want to be, um, we don't want to quibble about the role of direction. And so in providing this direction, I would highlight kind of three crucial points that managers should think about in trying to make bureaucracies adaptive. Um, the first important criteria is evaluation. What is the evaluation criteria in this organization? If you would like your bureaucrats to be adaptive, to be um, flexible, is that reflected in the evaluation criteria of your staff? The second point I would bring out is incentives. 
Um, we often talk about wanting to make bureaucracies more adaptive. We talk about bringing in new language and new frameworks and being um, embracing of complexity. But at the end of the day, we have to address the practical issue of incentives. Uh, what rewards do bureaucrats get from behaving adaptively? In the public sector, there are limited incentives that we can provide in terms of um, monetary compensation. So we have to think about other forms of incentives such as recognition. But it is important to put that on the table. We need to think about how do you reward your staff members for behaving adaptively? And the third crucial criteria are rules. Uh, directed improvisation does not mean that you give up on rules. Quite the contrary, rules are crucial. Uh, the management has to make clear rules about what can and cannot be done when personnel is trying to adapt. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks a lot for that, Yin-Yin. That's very clear. Um, Stacey. You've been working with USAID, which is itself, of course, a large bureaucracy for a number of years. And lots of the approaches that we've heard, like adaptation, flexibility, learning and improvisation, don't sound stereotypically bureaucratic. Um, how have you approached creating and building an adaptive culture within your organization? Yeah, thank you, Emma. Um, a great question. I think in my response, you'll hear echoes of what others have, have mentioned. Um, so at USAID, uh, the work that I'll speak to really has to do with um, the policy bureau that I've been working in um, for the last 10 years and our effort to make our programs in dozens of countries around the world more adaptive because if we're not adapting to um, just a, a rapidly changing world, we're definitely not going to be doing effective development. And, and that, of course, is the purpose of managing adaptively. So at USAID, we found that it's a combination of empowering people and re removing the obstacles that lie in the path between them and the effective development that they want to achieve. So the empowering has, um, you know, as you asked about culture, it, it definitely has a lot of cultural aspects. So appreciating people and trusting them is important. And we've already heard a little bit about that this morning. Um, so um, uh, making sure that people understand that the expertise that they have is acknowledged and uh, trusting them to apply that to the, to the work that we're doing. And at USAID, we're a strongly mission-driven organization. Our workforce is passionate about the work that we're doing. So um, that that trusting piece should be should be easy. It is also um, essential to, to people doing good work. Another aspect of that is devolving responsibility so that decision-making happens closer to where things are shifting. Um, that enables staff to adapt more quickly. And here I'm talking not only about USAID staff, but our implementing partners who, who uh, implement the programs that we plan and manage um, in the field. Um, investing in people's continuous learning so that they have a growth mindset is really important to making sure that they're they're working more adaptively. And then uh, connecting to people's sense of purpose is, is really important. And as an, as an organizational culture, being able to acknowledge and appreciate and, and um, 
uh, leverage people's sense of passion as a as a resource is it, it's something that I, I really feel like we should be better at because it is this huge source of energy and commitment that often we leave at the door if we have an institutional culture that um, you know that doesn't incentivize experimentation and innovation and um, different ways of working. So all of those need to come into play in institutional culture and they need to be led uh, by leadership as well as from uh, throughout the the organization. Um, uh, there are also institutional aspects of empowerment, such as ensuring that people have a framework for how their role fits into the broader picture and a roadmap, as well as tools, examples, access to their peers for peer assist, and so on. So we've been doing this a lot throughout all of our guidance for how we plan, manage, and assess our development programs, specifically uh, the work that I had been leading for a while, the collaborating, learning, and adapting work um, is very much about empowering and creating the roadmap and the tools and the examples and the, and the peer learning opportunities for that. More recently, we've been engaged, as I think all of our organizations have, in some planning around uh, COVID and really working on adaptivity in that. So that's that's the institutional culture side. The other side is re removing obstacles. And these are the, the bureaucratic and the organizational aspects of adaptive management. So obviously having a, a way to analyze um, complex problems uh, in a way that is evidence-based and, and really uh, holistic in its view is crucial. Um, making sure that policy guidance anticipates that we will need to adapt instead of anticipating stasis and th that it supports adaptivity. Making sure that our policies are, are aligned. So for instance, we, we put a lot of effort into making our, um, uh, making our program uh, process, program uh, uh, planning process adaptive only to find that our acquisition and assistance processes were, uh, were more rigid. So then we had to align acquisition and assistance with um, the policy guidance around the program cycle. And then, and then, of course, the human resources piece that others have already spoken to, making sure that, that performance is managed to support adaptivity. Thank you so much, Stacey. And moving to you, Sam. Um, your research has looked across several different bureaucracies and public organizations to see how they've managed to carve out ways of working more adaptively. What have you found some of the key lessons? Thanks, Emma. Um, perhaps first, just kind of a bit of context, the work we've been doing on this under Learn Adapt. So that within aid management and development, there's a long history of critiques of more traditional rigid program management. And I think as a result, if you talk to those managing aid or development programs, being adaptive is often seen as common sense. It's what we would do anyway. But as Stacey mentioned, the challenge it's not necessarily persuading people of the importance of working adaptively, but addressing the barriers and the organisational kind of restraints that are in their way to doing so. So the Learn Adapt programme, which is a partnership with, with FCDO, is, as you mentioned, is we've moved to looking at how organisations may enable adaptation, how they cannot be something in the way and how they, they might support that. And, and the research you mentioned is a working paper coming out soon, which explores how public organisations across a range of sectors and countries have enabled that space. So, so just to share a couple of principles that emerge from the research now, first is around how policies or interventions were designed. 
So in no cases, I think Yen Yen kind of spoke to this point, in no cases was it just freewheeling trial and error, the space for experimentation, testing, learning. It was always structured in some form. And so in some cases, this was through high-level policy steers, clear communication from leadership about when and where adaptation and experimentation are expected and where they aren't. In other cases, or perhaps you have both, but in other cases, you might have a very structured process for how programs or policies are tested and adapted that guides program managers through the process of, of, of experimenting and learning. Secondly, contracting was also very important. So it was, it was key that contracts didn't overly predefine services in a way that restricts flexibility to adapt as the context changes or as, as you learn about what's working. And more generally, while there's always a balance struck between these kind of two approaches, the more adaptive organizations that we looked at in the research tended to shift from transactional approaches to contracting that emphasizes import enforcement regulations and so on to more relational approaches that are focused on trust and personal relationships. And this involved treating implementing organizations as partners rather than just suppliers that are contracted to deliver a predefined set of services. And there's a range of different contracting approaches and procurement approaches are used to embed that kind of approach. And just finally, it also involves resourcing greater hands-on management time. I think there's very specific sets of skills that are needed to adaptively manage programs. Your job evolves from kind of following a, a blueprint, imposing controls to actually creating an effective learning environment, building the relationships, building trust and so on. And all of this requires greater time, greater management input. And, and that's a key part of what project policy program effectiveness will look like. And so I think it's common amongst the aid agencies in particular we've worked with to see leadership supportive on paper of, of more adaptive ways of working. And you see this reflected in policies, but perhaps unaware or unable to back up this with the resourcing implications, providing the time and the, and the resources for program managers to actually work in, in more adaptive ways. Thank you, Sam. Um, now I'm going to come back around to, to Toby. One of the themes that I've noticed across these is that we keep hearing that actually there are some enabling conditions that sort of sit under our ability to be adaptive. What have you noticed from your sort of gamut of research really um, creates those enabling conditions? Um, thanks, Emma. Yeah, the, it, one way I'm hearing this question is to say, what is it? What, what does it mean to optimise for learning? Um, and I think what we've learned from a, very, a number of contexts is that it's important to try and escape the straitjacket of the new public management approaches here in that you can't just add learning onto existing contracting and performance management mechanisms, as a number of the speakers have been saying. If you want, if learning is the crucial thing, so learning enables adaptation, or if we need learning, then contract for learning move away from the extrinsic based reward and punishment of performance management right? those things are incompatible with developing uh, uh, kind of adaptive learning approaches so if you, if you want learning you need to change those kind of structural things you can do that in lots of practical ways by kind of rewriting job descriptions and incentives as, as yen yen was saying uh, devolving decision making into the work as, as, as stacy was saying um, one thing that I would kind of emphasize is about hearing the voices and experiences of those who are at the sharp end of all this, the, the beneficiaries of international development work and those working on the ground. And um, a bunch of this stuff is enabled 
by processes of shared shared sense making in that in a in a complex system like any kind of international development work there will be lots of perspectives in the system on what the work is and how to do it there is truth in all of those mm -hmm. they all need to be heard and and finally I would I would, I would kind of emphasize the point that a whole number of speakers have made that we can build trust by learning together like, and trust is at the core of this stuff but it doesn't exist by itself like it needs to be actively developed and one way that can do that is by these processes of learning together creating an experimental learning culture thank you toby um yin yin you've done incredible work on researching adaptive bureaucracies in china your book how china escaped the poverty trap is a great example what do you think enabled, if we're talking about enablers, the Chinese bureaucracy to be adaptive at such a scale? Thank you, Emma, for your question. Um, one of the key factors for the paradox of China's adaptive bureaucracy is that during the process of market reform, the government had a very clear definition of adaptive success. They had a very clear definition of what it means to be an adaptive bureaucrat, what an adaptive outcome looks like. And that is because the country at that time of the development was very focused on growth. Now that's not to advocate that other governments should do so. This is just to illustrate the point that in order to create a quote unquote adaptive bureaucracy, um, that you need to have a clear definition of success. Um, and oftentimes what happens is that we would hear um, programs about being adaptive and so forth, um, but the staff on the ground feels confused because they do not know what it means to be adaptive. And so that criteria has to be clearly signaled and it has to be reflected in the outcomes in the evaluation in order for the bureaucrats to know that this is what it means to behave adaptively and these are the outcomes that are recognized and valued by the organization in order to create the other enabling conditions for adaptation. Thank you very much. Um, Anna, building on your experiences and your current post as a civil servant, what do you think are some of the challenges that you see to working adaptively? Um, and what might need to change for them to become more more common? Um, thank you, Emma. Um, I spoke about passing three measures in one month. And while we did certain adaptive, oh, well, we did some improvisation, it actually stressed everyone. It was too much for all of us. And it was definitely not business as usual. So by December, even though we passed another measure into law, our committee was literally bursting at the seams. We couldn't even enjoy our Christmas party. You see, a lot of my colleagues have valuable institutional experience, but some are not adept technologically and some are thinking of retirement. So I don't know how we can do adaptive in this context. And, but of course, there are enough team members who are willing to learn and we hope that by enabling collaboration the others may, may adjust as well so how can we do this first we are trying to open the organization we made information accessible to everyone by setting up viber channels we also have a slack 
And now that we are in a work from home mode, we, more people are appreciating these apps. And the people who used to be part of factions are crossing uh, the lines of these factions and they're beginning to appreciate each other. We also have weekly staff meetings and long personal chats. And we even tried to have an e-party and it lasted for five hours. Second, we need to provide learning opportunities with the help of friends in the university and the executive. We organized four trainings, two of which entailed presentations in taxation and customs administration. This is a first in the history of our committee. And of course, most importantly, the third step is to hire new blood and start succession planning. Uh, this is something uh, that is quite um, extraordinary in government. Soon, uh, three technical staff will join us and they were all hired based on their willingness to learn and adapt. And of course, we also hope to train people who can eventually replace us. I think that we must keep enabling a safe space in our organizations where people can initiate, take responsibility, involve others, and most importantly, um, in, our, in our line of work, communicate mistakes and uncertainties. We just started doing all this, but we hope to facilitate the development of values and the design of adaptive system. We aim to work for what Toby would call collective bravery. I really like that term, Toby. And of course, uh, we hope that, you know, authentic team conversations will help us understand the complexity of legislation, enable us to come up with nuanced and feasible solutions, and be able to communicate this effectively to our varied publics, our legislators, the stakeholders, and of course, the general public. Thank you, Emma. I hope I was able to answer the question. Thanks, Anna. Very much so. And I'm, I'm seeing this theme that comes out about relationships and mindset and building trust and sort of psychological safety so you can say what you're seeing and be able to adapt. Um, and I hear this, we've got both the mindsets part and then also the kind of the organisational structures. And Stacey, you called them organisational obstacles that you've been working around. Can you reflect where you've seen the progress in addressing these, but also what challenges remain maybe? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think that there has been a lot of progress in terms of uh, really articulating clearly the, the processes by which we can plan for adapting and manage um, our, our, our own processes, but also those of our implementing partners um, to support adaptivity. So we have, I think, We've made a lot of progress in understanding at a granular level what that looks like, what it feels like, um, what it has to do with culture and, and including the culture of the relationship between USAID and our implementing partners, um, how we resource it, how we build adaptivity, which requires time to pause and reflect, how we build that into work plans, how we build that into budgets, as well as the, the, the bigger picture. Um, uh, so I think in terms of um, specifying clearly the, the aspects that have to do with culture, processes, and resources, and what needs to be in place for those in order for us to work adaptively has helped demystify it and helped give people some concrete sense of what that looks like. I think, um, uh, and, and so that, that, that mental mindset piece is, has shifted a lot. I've seen a lot of shift 
in my time at USAID from a sort of, you know, positivist, we know how to do this to, wow, it's a complex world. Development challenges are complex. Um, we need to test and respond and be prepared to, to shift course and so on. So that mindset shift, um, there, there has been a lot of progress in that. I think in terms of challenges, a really big one for us is that our workforce moves around all the time. And um, with, with people shifting around, it's really hard to institutionalize change, especially when that change is gonna look a little bit different from place to place. So that, that uh, need to sort of balance standard approaches with local, locally specific customization in a context where people move around all the time, it makes change management really hard. It makes institutionalization of change really hard. So I would say we have not cracked the nut on that. We're still really struggling on that. And then I think sort of at a higher level and echoing what Toby said, um, you know, the essence of adaptivity and adaptive management is maintaining the closest fit between program and the local context uh, that, that you possibly can. So I think the, the limits of managing adaptively lie in our ability to understand and appreciate and respond to local agendas and the local development context, um, the, the local assets that we should be facilitating and so on. So I, I think that is the, the, um, the, the biggest sort of um, uh, uh, component that, that defines the limits of, of managing adaptively currently. Thank you. Thank you, Stacey. Um, Sam, from your research and your experience promoting adaptive work with aid donors, what are some of the challenges and trade-offs um, that you think organisations might face when they're trying to be adaptive? Mm, yeah, thanks, Emma. I mean, as as the others have suggested, all the organisations we've looked at in in the research had had to balance certain demands when it came to supporting adaptation. Um, and, you know, there's various different incentives that organisations have to face and meet. And results frameworks and accountability systems were particularly important. So, all, in all of our cases, very justifiably needed to meet demands to account for how public money is spent. And as Toby and others have pointed to, the challenge I think comes in designing results and accountability systems so that they incentivize staff to effectively tailor and adapt projects to meet these long-term goals, but that they do so in a way that doesn't actually constrict the space to adapt in practice. And, you know, Toby has already spoken eloquently about how results metrics, if poorly defined, can lead to gaming, disincentive effects, and, and so on. And there are, there are different approaches we saw the organizations took to balancing adaptation with accountability. So some organizations focused more on focused on kind of replacing or complementing numerical performance metrics with more narrative approaches to accountability. So these narrative approaches tend to be focused on justification, getting bureaucrats, getting programs to document and explain why they've made a decision, what is the justification to adapt in and in a much more kind of narrative way than can be captured under kind of quite rigid numerical metrics. And in, in other cases, when results metrics were used, they were at a high enough level to legitimize variation in exactly what results are. And I think this speaks to Yen Yen's point around having some kind of high level clear goal. So this is what these metrics intended to do. You might see bedrock indicators fixed on some kind of longer term goal, but not being prescriptive about the best activities, projects, initiatives, and so on to, to work towards that goal. And then a second element that are, are cases balanced was what level of policy steer and strategic direction does 
organizational leadership provide versus how much space and autonomy it allows for improvisation, um, either from you know interpretation of policy from devolved units or kind of just autonomy and discretion to frontline staff. And there's, there's certainly a balance to be struck there. But I think there's a growing base of evidence, both in aid programming and in public sector more generally, that giving discretion to motivated bureaucrats to use their judgment is a more effective approach to meeting complex and unpredictable challenges and using tight central controls. And structurally, many of the cases we looked at had a more devolved or decentralized organizational structure. And like that structure in itself enabled them to support greater understanding of the dynamics within a given setting, supported more direct interaction with citizens and those that the policy is designed to serve, and more opportunity to adapt policies to context. Thank you, sir. And I love what comes through is this very human element, right? Like we're all driven by the need for autonomy, actually. And if we can realize that and capitalize on it and set the, the, the boundaries and the direction and trajectory, how powerful that becomes. I'm, I'm going to turn to some, some questions that have been coming in from the audience. And several of us have been talking about, um, of you have been talking about data and information, right? And being able to act on it. And I, I always like this um, distinction between getting data to prove versus improve. And often we're using data very much down the prove end, as perhaps Toby's been saying. What kind of robust methods have you found to, to be actually much more using information on that improve side, perhaps while also meeting the needs um, for the prove side, right? So doing both. And that's a question to all of you. Anyone who'd like to ask? Toby, please. Um, so I would say you have to choose. You have to choose whether you're going to use your data for proving or improving, because as soon as you choose proving, then people start to game the data in the system and the data becomes effectively useless for improving. So it is, it is a choice that people have to make. What do you want to use your data for? Do you want to use it for proving or do you want to use it for improving? And you can't do both. So at risk of asking the same question, how then do we get around the fact that actually there are still you know, requirements from people further up to for accountability purposes, for example? What do we do there? Sam? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very good question, I think, is one of the ever-present challenges we've seen in, in our work. And I think lots of it comes to the point Yen Yen made around thinking about the incentives that are created. So, yes, you know, lots of the aid agencies we've worked with have are stuck with working with quite rigid log frames for now. So set plans that, you know, are, are, are structure and a framework that was designed based on a more traditional approach of program management where you do inputs that lead to this and so on. But within those constraints, I think there are different ways to think about how do you set indicators that create more helpful incentives rather than less so. So for example, we've seen programs that have had indicators that are actually trying to measure learning itself. So the indicators a program would report against would be, you know, how much, how many times have you adapted your theory of change or what learning products you've produced. These are all very imperfect measures, but again, it's shifting from trying to capture something perfectly to thinking about the incentives that, that, that are generated. Mm, thank you. That reminds me of the middle circle of Toby's um, accountability for, for learning. Um, one of the points that you mentioned, Stacey, was how difficult it is to create organisational change when people are moving around, right? And I'm, I'm intrigued about the, the kind of the, the, the counterpoint to that. How do you also make sure that 
pockets of innovation and adaptation are also feeding the rest of the organization? What is that kind of transfer of knowledge and information that you might see and innovation? Sure, yeah, a uh, great question. Um, and, you know, I, I think this might speak a little bit to the earlier question as well. Um, which, so, so part of it is acknowledging that we learn from more than the data. So understanding, you know, to the, to the for, previous question, the data is good for some things and it tells us some things. And um, Toby, I think that's a really bold statement that you have to choose. Um, and I'm not going to address that, uh, but I, I think that, um, you know, to the extent that we're using our data to learn that that's really important. Um, but I think also understanding that learning is broader than just grappling with data. Um, what we find is that um, people really need to understand from their peers uh, examples of how they have worked adaptively and um, really get into, you know, the texture and the nuance of that. And, you know, what did you do when this happened and what did you do when that happened? So creating those opportunities within our organizations um, and they do have to be, you know, Emma, you mentioned psychological safety. They do have to be safe spaces where we are free from, you know, accounting for the, the data and so on, but where we can say, this is what I'm struggling with and get that peer assist support from other people who are grappling with, with very similar things, but in different contexts, who understand where we're coming from, who can, who can help us think through all of the nuances that may not be captured in data, but are really essential to how we do good development and how we manage adaptively. Mm, I love that. I love the, the phrase, you don't learn from experience you learn from reflecting on experience right there's something about the very right. the very coming together and sharing that actually pushes your thinking forward and, and leads to emergence um a question maybe for for enna about um from frokta devaya from the interpeace peace responsiveness facility how do you start addressing the organizational culture challenges and in particular kind of some of the incentives created through things like procurement or HR, if you don't have senior leadership completely on board? If that's, if that works for you. You're on mute at the moment, Enna, sorry. Yeah, I didn't quite get it. The sound somehow, you know. The sound wasn't so good, but I think the question is, how do you do it if the leadership is not supporting you? Is that, did I get it somehow? Yeah. Well, um, for us in the government, uh, for well, I've been in the government for 20 years. We, we know how to look for workarounds. And we know, um, uh, we know our limits, but then we know our, uh, we know the needed value added. Uh, for example, in legislation, the leaders would always look at how far have you brought the measure? I mean, did it get passed at the committee level, at the plenary level? These are some of our milestones. But these are things that are beyond our control. These are all, this would depend on so many other factors. So what we do is we just try to speak the language of the leadership and try to keep on looking for workarounds. I think uh, that would do for now. Um, 
a lot of us are i mean almost um about the the mo the median age in the house of representatives is like 55 to 60. a lot are thinking of retirement that's why adaptive management is a challenge right now it's not an issue of leadership it's an issue of the population Thank you. Yin Yin, I wonder if I could turn to you as we build on this topic of leadership. I was struck you mentioned kind of having a very clear definition and expectation of what adaptive success looked like. And I wondered if you could maybe give us some ideas, right? Like what this is something that I think we struggle with. What What is an idea of an adaptive success? What were people shooting towards? I don't know if Yin still with us. No, I'm going to move on to another question. Oh, unmute, please. Yin Yin, I think you're there. Oh, I'm oh. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hit the wrong button. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Um, yes, I've, Emma, your question was about um, how do you clearly define um adaptive outcomes yes mm -hmm. yes and i think that that question um that question varies obviously by organization but um one of the difficulties of making public bureaucracies adaptive is that in the public sector we have multiple goals and these goals are often in conflict with one another so a, an example is in wanting to um, protect the environment on the one hand, but having economic growth on the other. Um, and in the Chinese government right now at this stage of the development, this is one of the conflicts uh, that they are facing. Um, and so that is why um, the adaptive part of the Chinese bureaucracy was best seen in the early part of the development when they had one goal, which was economic growth. The broader lesson to take away is that at the organizational level, there has to be a decision made at the leadership level about what is the top priority of that organization and what would the leadership consider to be a successful adaptive outcomes. And there has to be mechanisms for those choices to be signaled to the entire organization so that bureaucrats can see that this is what is expected of us in the process of adaptation. And these are the outcomes that we want to work toward. We want to avoid the fallacy where we encourage adaptation, but do not provide clear outlines for exactly what are the outcomes that are desired. In which case I have encountered many uh, organizations adopting um, innovation programs um, and, and, and language and so forth. But privately, when you speak to the bureaucrats, what they expect, what they express is a sense of confusion about what is expected of them. Thank you. I wonder if anyone else has any reflections on that. Like the signaling is so important and to make sure that the incentives are aligned um, and it feels like that's come through in a lot of a lot of your work, actually. I wonder if you could talk about um, how you found ways to make sure that that they're aligning. I was looking at your language 
Stacey, but that you're removing obstacles, but more than that, that you're making sure that the organisational incentives are actually pulling you in the same direction, rather than saying one thing, please be adaptive, and yet you're pulled completely back by the organisational structures. I wonder what success you've all found in aligning those. Sorry, is that for me or, or generally? Please, you start, Stacey, that'd be great. Sure, yeah. Um, so um, we've definitely found success, I think, in um, uh, articulating uh, how we expect the, the program planning process to um, build in adaptivity by um, saying, uh, for instance, in the policy guidance, consider this and then consider the alternative things that that might happen and and build into your design um, uh, ways to reflect on evidence, ways to reflect on experience, um, ways to learn from what's going on, uh, anticipate um, the need to adapt, uh, figure out what your analytic process will be in order to support it. Here are some examples. Here are some suggestions. You know, so really articulating it um, in a clear way, uh, because Yan Yan is exactly right. People tend to get confused. And we found that in sort of earlier versions of our policy guidance that um, had a lot of this language built in, some people absolutely love that and they thrive on that and they know what you mean and they they tend to think systemically anyway and then other people really want the sort of step by step so so balancing that is is really tricky and i think that's where the examples come in because for for the people who feel that they need something more concrete or something that looks a bit more like a roadmap examples can be enormously helpful and a good counterbalance to um uh guidance language that might be a little bit less clear. Sam, please jump in. Yeah, just I think also on, on this point a little bit and from the work we did, leadership was important, like without question. But, you know, obviously you'll be in situations where the leadership isn't fully supportive in, or, in, or isn't manifest in, in the ways you want. And I think perhaps one thing to consider there is is how much discretion individual bureaucrats actually have in their work. So I think this idea of, you know, bureaucrats constrained by tight rules and rigid boxes is true to some extent, but it's not really reflective of the reality that lots of individual work, individual bureaucrats have. And I mean, you know, it's a classic work on public administration talking about street level bureaucrats as people who interact day to day with citizens as the actual policy makers. There's a lot of space, a lot of discretion in these staff's work to actually tailor what they do. And, then, and there's a lot of influence there. And so there's perhaps something in the message of, you know, any good program manager is gonna adapt, is gonna tailor naturally, this is what will happen. And there's more space you might think to do this. And it's about just kind of supporting this, which goes on either behind the scenes or slightly more visibly. And it's where you want that to happen. I love that, Sam. And I mean, good. Another thing that I think I would add there is confidence. Like we're really finding that, um, even if the rules perhaps only give you a little bit of space, if you're confident that an adaptive approach is right and that you are not going to suffer any consequences, you expand to take what place you can. Similarly, if um, if even the rules right allow you to be really adaptive, but you're not confident, then you just you, you kind of retreat to the lowest common denominator. 
So I think there's really something there which maybe echoes the, the leadership role about um, giving people confidence, setting the incentives. Um, I have another couple of questions here. I wonder if um, a couple of the panelists could tell a story about how they've managed to catalyze the shift in people that they work with from more of a kind of fixed mindset, to use your phrase, Stacey, to a more of a, a growth experimental mindset. And how do you, outside of something which is formal, right, not a formal training program, create a culture that kind of really fosters a growth mindset? That's to whoever would like to answer first. Stacey. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to, to start. Um, so I think what I have uh, learned and experienced at USAID um, around several change processes is that what works best is to uh, work with the people who are the most forward leaning in the direction that you want to go and, and cultivate some examples. And, and sometimes you want to do that a little bit under the radar at the beginning, but you're working with innovators and people who um, have a strong vision and are able to translate that vision into action and examples. And then you bring it out into the open and you shine a light on it. And um, other people who are maybe a little bit more cautious, they see the example and they also see the appreciation of the example. They see that leaders are saying, yes, this is a good thing. Um, and the people who have led the innovation are, are getting rewarded in the ways that bureaucracies award people or reward people. Um, and, and so that kind of, you know, cultivating a, a change example and then bringing it out so that other people want to follow, follow along, that has worked really well at USAID on, in a number of, of areas of change. Thank you. Thank you. Toby, would you like to jump in? I uh, just wanted to endorse what Stacey was saying there. Um, so the examples that we've seen of organisations doing this, like uh, Plymouth City Council in the UK, for example, that was exactly their tactics as well for this. They uh, uh, A small kind of vanguard group of people who really got this stuff um, created spaces for them to experiment and formed a little community of practice. It was four of them initially. And, uh, but... Um, maintained an open invitation so like uh took it uh, exactly as Stacey was saying took it from kind of underground working through to like anyone can join in with this and now i think there's something like 75 of them in that community of practice it has spread virally across the, the the council and so our experience of this kind of um the adoption of these kind of learn adapt practices is it has to be an example of itself you cannot, it, you can't command and control people into uh, adaptive practices. So you have to give people the space to encourage the experimental uh, culture that for things to spread kind of horizontally and virally. Leaders can signal that they want that and create those permission spaces, remove organizational obstructions. But in the end, it, it has to spread in that kind of viral way. makes me think what you're saying about the coalition of the brave again toby that there's something about exam um the, the showcasing the examples the, the 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 sharing how you're kind of hacking the system 
right? And then that in turn also encourages the system to move towards the hack, kind of expose it. So uh, that if, if you look at the, the kind of classic um, uh, kind of theory of change behind paradigm shift, that's exactly how paradigm shift happens. Mm -hmm. It starts with a few mavericks telling an, an alternative story, and then you get more and more and more examples of that alternative story in practice. And all of a sudden, tipping mm -hmm. point, you're the new normal. Yes. Yeah. I, I, can I add something? Yeah. Well, in our in our organization, that actually happened. Like when I came in, oh, I have a I have an academic background. Maybe that's why. And I'm doing postmodernism for my research. So when I came in, um, I was so they were so busy with all these templates and with with all this research. Uh, that no one really reads. So I started changing the communication packets all on my own. Then I started doing stakeholder analysis and doing messaging. And somehow uh, one or two copied the style and they saw that it's effective in communicating their, um, their measures, their tax measures. And then now everyone's doing it, I think. Um, so the other committees are asking us how we're doing all this and we're just you know, we come up with two to three pages, which are really hard to do, but at least people read it, and that's what's important. Thank you. Can I pass to Yen Yen on this point? Sure, Emma. I'd love to build on your point about confidence. I think that's a really important point. Uh, bureaucrats want to know uh, confidently what are the things that they can do and cannot do in order to be adaptive. And I think one of the useful questions to think about is, is this an organization in which people can do what they're explicitly told they can do? Or is this an organization in which you can do anything as long as it has not been forbidden, right? So these are the these are sort of two modalities uh, to 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 think about. Um, and in the case of China's experience, one of the um, important conditions for making policy experiments possible is that clear rules were given about red lines. Like these are the boundaries that you cannot cross, um, but there are certain areas in which there is tremendous ambiguity. And that ambiguity allows for experimentation because as long as it's not forbidden, you can try things out. And that experiment then creates feedback, which allows for scaling at the highest level. So setting rules are actually critical for adaptation. It's not true that in order to adapt, we should just throw away all of these rules. We need to have a strategic mixture of ambiguity and clarity. Another thing to think about is that this mixture of ambiguity and clarity varies by sector, it varies by issue. So it's not a one size fits all within an organization. If it's about national security, for instance, I suppose we would have a lot more restrictions because there will be rules about certain things that you must not do. If it's something really complex about promoting, say, cutting edge innovation, where the bureaucrat hardly understands the issue anyway, then we could imagine having a lot more ambiguity and space. So we need to think about varying mixtures of clarity and ambiguity by sector and by issue areas. It's not a one size fits all. It's really helpful, thank you. 
Um, on this last question, Sam, I wonder if you have anything to add? Um, I mean, again, big question and culture change is often, I think, prescribed, but often also very elusive in practice. Um, some really interesting examples we looked at in the work were trying to institutionalise these kind of approaches. So the Singaporean government has this approach around kind of what it calls work improvement teams. And I mean, much of this, how successful it is, is, is out for judgment. And, you know, it's hard to tell. But the idea is to try and inculcate a culture of continual improvement amongst staff. So staff should see it as part of their job and what they're rewarded or uh, kind of incentivized to do is to think about ways in which what they do day to day can be made better. And that includes, you know, suggestions to hire leadership about what you need to change to to, to make my work better. And perhaps there's something there around that kind of attitude of, of continual improvement. But again, culture change is, is, is a very elusive topic. Thank you. And it's been really interesting throughout this to start, you know, demystifying, to use um, Stacey's words and, and thinking through what are some of the concrete, concrete tips that we've heard. And we've heard lots of them, actually. But I wondered if we could use this last bit of time to ask you just to, to, to bring what to your mind are some of the key tips that you would give when you're trying to encourage um, bureaucracies to be more adaptive. You know, bureaucracies in, take different forms around the world, obviously. Um, but what tips, what short tips would each of you have? And I start by asking Toby, please. Um, so the first one I would say is, uh, you'd be amazed at what you can get away with if you call it an experiment. Um, so, experiment like create the permission create permission spaces to experiment and almost everyone has some kind of space that they can experiment in even if it's just in their own practice but if you're going to do that be rigorous about that as an exploration make sure that you have proper learning processes around it so that you can involve others and share what you learn and blah, blah, blah. Um, and secondly you can turn the concepts of accountability around the the evidence for um, the problems and inefficiencies and waste that targets and the other forms then create is kind of overwhelming. It's like it's yeah, it's overwhelming. So next time someone says, "Oh, we have to do it like this because you have to contract like this because that's the 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 way that our organisation demands doing it," just say, "Okay, um, do you mind signing off on that?" Because obviously, when it comes to evaluation and says we've had to contract in this way because this, like our evaluators are going to ask who made us do that because that'll, that'll cause like failure modes down the line. But just just, just put your mic name to that, would you? Ooh. So let's let's use the tools that we have to um, create change. Lovely, thank you, Enno. What would your top tips be? Yeah. Um, I can think of uh, two words, um, bravery and some and intentionality. I learned that from Toby. Well, I'm thinking of four. First, uh, we need to be brave and embrace ambiguity and complexity in our organizations. It is more common than, it is more common than we think. In our line of work, um, which is policymaking, we know that it is messy. So, of course, we have to be ready to be entangled in the mess if we are to add value. And of course, I, if we fail, second, if we fail, let us find new ways of interacting and try to scratch below the surface. This may be the rigor Toby is talking about and look for workarounds. Our failed attempt 
on rationalizing fiscal incentives helped us find the rule to hasten the proceedings this Congress. And lo and behold, we are succeeding because the Senate passed it last week. So I think we're moving there. And third, let's value our conversations where the other person stands represents more than what we see. It's not all about positions. It's not as easy as that. Let us remove our preconceived lenses and engage well. I constantly remind myself to get out of notions that politicians are corrupt and bureaucrats are lazy. Probably tired, but definitely not lazy, guys. Fourth, we need to think of time and context as central factors. Life is dynamic, so we must change as needed. In fact, what is acceptable now may not be acceptable in a few days, so we should not be hung up on things only if we can measure them. Let us stay grounded and complement evidence with intuition and, of course, with a lot of kindness. Thank you. Thank you so much for those points, Anna. Can I pass to Yin Yin, please? Sure. Um, the one um, principle that I would highlight is to align what you say you embrace with what you actually reward in the organization. Um, and this is important because bureaucrats get frustrated and even disillusioned when they keep hearing the management say, we want you to behave adaptively, but the reality that they face pulls them in the opposite direction. So whenever someone asks me, you know, is this organization adaptive? How do we do that? The two important things that I would look at. The first thing is I would say, show me your annual evaluation criteria, right? What are you evaluating the bureaucrats on? And that is the most concrete uh, system for signaling what kind of outcomes are valued uh, in that organization. The second thing I would do is actually to talk to at least some of these bureaucrats. Uh, my work um, draws heavily on interviews and ethnography, just listening to what people uh, think and say. And oftentimes we do uh, innovation and adaptive programming in bureaucracies without actually asking how bureaucrats um, feel. And I would want what I would want to know from the bureaucrats is from your perception, uh, how does one do well and survive in this organization? And we would want to see if those perception of the rules for doing well in an organization is actually aligned with the stated message of behaving adaptively. Thank you ever so much. And Sam, your top tips. Thanks very much, um, Emma. I perhaps I kind of want to talk about two things and I think how what a future for this agenda could be within the development sector where I think adaptive management has become a bit of a buzzword somewhat and is you know somewhat on trend and I think one thing is I think we've heard a lot today about the the benefits of of adaptation but I also don't think that adaptation is a silver bullet for every problem that every development agency might have like there's various different demands we've heard that public bureaucracies face and not all of these are just you know bad demands that translate to challenges lots of them are very legitimate large public organizations still need to deliver services reliably, deliver services at scale, deliver services impartially to some extent. So you can't be experimenting or adapting perhaps all the time. But I think what we have learned today is that there's 
lots to be done in terms of situating the agenda for adaptive approaches within the organizations they work. So and in conversation with work that's been done on public administration more generally. So where does the space for adaptation and learning sit within the various demands, incentives, structures that different organizations have? And what that illustrates in terms of plausibility and barriers toward adaptive working. And in, and in doing so, I think there's perhaps something there to look at when adaptation is effectiveness. And, you know, Yan Yan made a point about it's not applicable across all sectors, perhaps, but in what circumstances, given your organizational incentives and structures and demands and so on, would you might want to be more adaptive? Um, and then secondly, and just to conclude, I think it'd be good to have this to move away from seeing adaptive management as just a technical agenda for how you manage aid programs. There are certainly specific constraints that aid and donor organizations face, but the basic uh, kind of argument behind these ways of working, which Toby laid out at the start, that the complexity of public policy challenges requires you to learn better and adapt more. That applies to a large range of public policy issues globally and across different sectors as we've done today. So I think there's lots that the development sector itself can learn from diverse examples across different, different sectors as well. Thank you so much, um, Sam and everyone. It's been such an interesting discussion. Um, there are, we've, we've, we've sort of, covered loads and loads of ground and there are a couple of things that really stood out to me um one is the importance of clear expectations right so i think as you've just mentioned sam and as Toad mentioned an understanding of complexity and that actually as you said you'd seen this, the shift stacy understanding more increasingly that as things are complex of course we need to be adaptive right and that's becoming more and more common sense so the expectation that you will be adaptive and stating that very clearly, Enna, to your point about intentionality, right? We often note, um, I know that the Learn Adapt program and FCDO talk about the distinction between being flexible and being adaptive. We're not talking about like hitting a brick wall and then having to go around it. You know, that's maybe being flexible. But what we're talking about is a very intentional process of recognising that the context is going to change and um, things will change over time. We're going to find out more. We're going to find out more as we go along. Right? We know kind of where we're going and we're going to experiment and adapt on our way there. So there's a real intentionality here. Um, I loved what you're saying, Yin Yin, about um, articulating adaptive success. And I think that's something that I think we can all get better at, actually. Um, and also the red lines for adapting, we call it at brink, like the guardrails, right? Like these are the things, this is your, your, your sandbox, this is the area to play around in. And being clear in articulating that. Another thing that, that springs to mind is a lot of what we've talked about seems to fit into a framework that at, at brink we call behavioral innovation. Um, and so that's, a, if you could imagine a, a triangle where you've got methods, mechanisms and mindsets and you actually need all of these to be adaptive or to innovate and we often concentrate on the the method side right and the experiments are really important and the reflective processes are really important but what i think we've underlined today as well is the mindset is critical and we've talked about growth mindset um i loved what you were saying enna and yin yin actually about being really human centered in this and not just human centered um, about the people that we're working for, but also about the bureaucrats, right? Like what are your own personal motivations and incentives? 
um, and trying to be very intentional in designing for that, in designing for people's own needs and very human um, yeah, needs and ways of ways of being and showing up. The other thing around mindsets that seems to have come out is it's not just your mindset on your own. We all exist, we're, we're social beings, right? And we all exist in relation to others. And it seems like building that trust and those relationships is critical to being able to adapt. Um, and I guess the other part of that, so on the, I'm not really going to do my triangle, am I? On the um, mechanisms corner, for me, that's very much to do with all of the institutional enabling conditions that we've talked about and recognizing that those people or even those relationships exist in their own systems. Right. So we're all within our own system. So we need to think about the institutional um, enabling factors to allow us to adapt. So I think there's lots to think about there, lots of different levels um, and of complexity. Um, so thank you. Just to, to finish, thank you ever so much to all our speakers and to Learn Adapt for, for this holding this space and especially to ODI for hosting the, the webinar. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>